Can you make money from customers? Not raise money, not write nice business plans. Would anybody pay for your idea and how much would they pay? And you can validate that very quickly. This is Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. My name is Yigal Marcus. Thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll meet the entrepreneurs who have personified the economic miracle known as a startup nation, the state of Israel. We'll learn about the culture which helped incubate them and their ideas. We'll learn of their successes and of course their failures. And we'll explore why it is that Israel develops some of the leading innovators of our time. When you look at the landscape of businesses that have attracted massive valuations from the markets, data-oriented businesses are near the top of that list. Think about it. At the end of the day, what fuels the growth of companies like Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google is the fact that they collect massive amounts of data about consumers and then very effectively monetize that data. Well, in the world of business-to-business transactions and sales, data too plays a critically central role. And companies that can mine the relevant data about prospective customers, analyze it and organize it, are likely able to then monetize it. And that is exactly what a company called Zoom Info did for the highly lucrative business of lead generation. We resume with part two of my fascinating interview with Jonathan Stern, the founder of Zoom Info. So you started Zoom Info in 2000, and you had mentioned before the motivation behind it, which is really to make sense out of an enormous amount of data that's on the internet about people and companies. How did you begin? So you, 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 you didn't have any partners uh, for all intents and purposes. Right. And you just so coded I, yourself or, or how did no, you? So what I did was I hired, I pulled one engineer from uh, CardScan to work on this. And then I went and I hired another engineer to do the core technology. And after about a month of him working on it, he came to me and he said, I have good news and bad news. I said, oh, my two to nature, let's start with the bad news. He says, well, the bad news, I have no clue what I'm doing. You know, this, this <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not a good thing to say to a boss. <laughs> right. I have no clue what I'm doing. This, you gave me like, you know, a PhD thing to do, and I have no idea what I'm doing. The good news is I discovered somebody who knows what he's doing. And here's his phone number. Go call him. So I called the guy. He's a scientist living in Montreal, in Canada. And I call him on the phone. I explain what I want to do. He says, ah, that's a piece of cake. I would, <laughs> Five I'm, minutes. I'm so <laughs> confident I can deliver to you what you want, and I'm willing to do it for free. And you will pay me only when you get the uh, completed product. Pay you in equity or in cash? In cash. He said, this he is didn't a want equity. You know, it's a piece of cake. I said, Michelle, excuse me, but are we talking about the same exact project? And he says, yeah, obviously, you want to just pull information about people and companies from the internet, piece of cake. I said, okay, I'll send you a ticket from Montreal. Why don't you come in here for a day? We'll talk. All right, he came, and I realized that he's really serious. The guy was a genius. And I said, yeah, I understand you are a genius, but it's not going to be done in six months. It's not going to be done in six years. This is a lifetime project. But I'll be delighted to work with you, 
And I'm going to pay you day one because I'm not taking anything for free. And that's how we started a tremendously productive cooperation. And see, he did the, the core of the, uh, of the application. And you had no investors? This is out no, of, I out had of pocket. investors. I had investors. Okay. But that was another thing. So I started doing it while still in, in card scan. Okay. And gradually realized that, yeah, there is some life into that idea. So I went to the board and I said, what I would like to do is invest a half a million dollar in that project and create a new company which we will spin off to the shareholders. And the answer was absolutely no. And I said, why not? And they said, you're going to fail. This is something that a lot of people tried and never succeeded. And it's going to be a destruction. Cardskin is working really well. You're making it very successful. And um, it's going to fail. We don't want to do that. So I said, well, I'm going to do it, with you or without you. So you have a choice. You can either be part of it, or you can just watch me do it. Ah, OK. <laughs> In that case, let's do it together. <laughs> So they, be, they actually became um, so what we investors. Did, yeah, what we did is something that, you know, structure I'm very proud of because then I did it again with Bezo. By that time, I had all the documents ready. So what we did is we created another company called, at the time it was called Elion. And the shareholding of Elion was I got a portion and all the other shareholders got a portion. Pro rata. Okay. So basically we did a mirror image of the shareholding of Cardscan into that new company. That was an empty company. And I got some uh, founders' shares in addition to that. And then we moved the IP from Cardscan into that entity and the two engineers I had. That was it. And we financed it through a loan from Cardscan to um, Zoom Info Elion. And the loan was on a monthly basis. So we didn't just transfer money, but every month we sent an invoice and we got the money. By the time we became profitable, the loan mounted to about a million and a half. By the time we sold Cardscan, we paid back the loan to Cardscan. So essentially, the shareholders got Zoom Info for free because that loan right. was paid back. So they kept their, their equity stake, but... Exactly. It was so just a they, when we capital. sold Cardscan, they already got their money back, you know, with a nice upside. And they had shares in Zoom Info that at the time was a very successful company, did about $16 million in sales at the time. Wow. $14 million in sales at the time. So they were very, very happy. Then we did exactly the same thing about Bezo. But that time, so Bezo is a company you founded in 2008, also from, from ZoomInfo. From ZoomInfo. So what happened there, which is a very similar story. So we were the first to publish a directory of people and companies on the web, way before LinkedIn. As you mentioned in your opening statements, if you type in a name, chances are you're going to see the ZoomInfo. So we did that back in 2005, I think. It started getting tremendous amount of traffic. And we said, OK, traffic equals advertising. So we need to build an advertising platform on Zoom Info because we get about 10 million visitors a month. And you wanted to build your own 
advertising network and not just outsource it to Google or one of these other players? That yes. You, okay. So Why? We, because we thought it was a very specific content and we might be able to create very specific business model. So we started doing that. We grew it to about six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year in revenues, but it wasn't growing as fast as we wanted. So I sat down with uh, Ross, who was the guy who ran this whole thing, and he says, "Listen, Jonathan, we have the traffic, we have the data, but we don't have the right business model. So we need to rethink our business model." I said, "Okay." So he was living in California at the time. He came to Boston one day. I said, why don't you come to breakfast one day to my house and we'll have breakfast and we'll think about it. So he came, I made him breakfast. We sat down and literally on the napkin, we sat down and we said, okay, so what's the right business model? Well, we have data about people. We have data about companies and we want to do advertising. And we both said, how about targeting? <laughs> 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 which was like, aha, so obvious, right? So BIZO stands for business demographics. That's what BIZO means. Okay? So we built a platform that, will allow, that allowed advertisers to target the advertising based on your business demographics. So if you are a CEO of a company, you probably want to get different advertising than if you are the receptionist. If you are in the software industry, you might get very different advertising than if you are in the medical industry and so forth. So we, we started inside Zooming for the same exact story. As it started to grow, Russ came and said, listen, we need to separate. We can't really live within Zoom Info. I said, well, I have all the paperwork ready, so <laughs> here it is, and that's how we did exactly the same thing. So now the investors in Cardscan have shares in ZoomInfo, and they now have shares in Bezo. So they have three companies for the price of one. That's a good deal. That's a very good deal. When I sold ZoomInfo, they said, and make sure you don't create a fourth company because we are tired of it. <laughs> And you actually sold Bezo first. We sold Bezo to LinkedIn in 2014 because they were actually competing and complementing what LinkedIn was doing. So LinkedIn bought them because what is LinkedIn? It's a targeted advertising, basically. They know who you are. But LinkedIn was doing most of their advertising on the LinkedIn platform. They wanted to expand it so that people would use the LinkedIn data outside of LinkedIn for targeting purposes. That's exactly what Bezo was doing. They thought that by combining forces, they're going to get uh, you know, a much better solution. So uh, you started building the company, and how quickly did revenues ramp up? So as I said, we did million dollars the first year of sales, which was 2002. It grew to three million, six million, eight million, whatever. And 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 the company really grew organically. Yes. You you. Sales covered expenses, and I guess the key to a good business is to get to profitability as soon as possible. We once had a discussion about that. The reason is not so much, you know, because um, I really like money. That's not the point. It does two very, very important things to you. One we covered already. When you ask customers for their money, it's the first time you get an honest answer about the value of your product. So the faster you get to that question, the less mistake you're going to make. So that's why I'm so you know, 
insisting that go out and sell because that will guide you to what are the important features, what are the important markets. It will just force you to be very, very honest about what you do. It'll, if, also, it'll also, you know, teach you to fail. If, if failing is, is part of, you know, co some companies fail. And the quicker you can figure that out, the less absolutely. money you're going to waste. And, and time. And time. And also when you ask people for their money and they don't give it to you, then you go to another market and you try there. And if they don't give you the money, you go to another market, but you do it quick, as you said. So you figure out very, very quickly what problems you really solve that people are paying to pay money for it. Okay, so to me, that's the best market research ever. That's the only market research I believe in is, do I get the order from you, yes or no? That's number one. Number two is when you build the DNA of a company that makes money and everybody in the company buys into it, then you can create an organization that has endless lifespan because you don't need to raise money. That means you have the luxury of making mistakes and learning and doing things because you can afford it. When you lose $100,000 a month, or when you make $100,000 a month, the difference is not $200,000. The difference is if you lose $100,000 a month, you know exactly when you're going to die. If you have a million dollars in the bank, you have 10 months. That's it. And you better be raising money, which means you're not paying attention to your business. If you're making $100,000 a month, then you have all the time in the world to make mistakes, learn, figure out your market, and all of that stuff. It's a huge difference. And one more thing, yeah. by the way. If you make it very explicit, the entire team buys into it. Their mindset changes completely. I've seen it time and again. They suddenly think like business people instead of engineers, Salespeople, marketing people, they don't think like that anymore. They start thinking about my job is to make money for the company. And is what I'm doing making money from the company? I had engineers ask me, why am I doing this? Did anybody ever use that? Why am I doing it? And I looked at them and I said, okay, they got the point. They shouldn't do anything that doesn't generate money. Because if it generates money, it means somebody needs it. If nobody needs it, it wouldn't generate money. It changes the DNA and the mindset of everybody in the company. And they work as a team, they think as a team, they have a common interest. There are two kinds in my mind of entrepreneurs and they're very, very different from one another. There are people who have a vision in their head and they're gonna develop this solar panel that will be 10 times more efficient than anything else. Well, sales will come if you solve that problem and if you need $50 million to develop it, there's nothing I can do about it, right? That's what it takes. This is one set of entrepreneurs and all, everything that I said until now is irrelevant to them. Right. Then there is a set of entrepreneurs who say, I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to build a good company and I want to be successful and I couldn't care less what the company is doing as long as it's going to be successful and profitable and all the good things. My speech is to them. Got it. Take a... Step back for a second. Let's talk a little bit about the influence of, of I guess, your Army career on your career. Um, was there an influence? I can just say that the people I had the pleasure or the honor of serving with 
Uh, they're all professors now, all of them, bar none. Um, so there's still hope for you <laughs> to become know. a professor. <laughs> no, but it was a very humbling experience because when I came there, um, you know, I used to be the top of the class everywhere I went. And then you show up there and people read math books at night and they come in the office in the morning and they talk about math problems. And with all due respect, I didn't read math books at night. Right. And you start looking at it and say, do I really want to compete with these people in academic circles? So that was, you know, that's why I listened to Aaron Devoit. Second thing I learned is the importance of big data and statistics. Even though, you know, I can't explain what we were doing, but you can assume that if you are in the NSA, which is the equivalence of, you know, 8200, you see mountains and mountains of data flow through your system. And you need some mechanisms to figure out out of these mountains of data what's important and what's not. And you have to do it automatically and you have to do it in real time. So I realized the power of you know, pretty basic tools and statistics to sort things out. So we were dealing with big data, what today is called big data, back in the you know, 80s and 70s. Um, and that was a very strong lesson. What are the biggest barriers that you faced, or the biggest barrier that you faced with ZoomInfo specifically? The barrier was to figure out the business model. I'll give you an, exa you know, an example, and you will see, again, it's a marketing thing that you learn the hard way. So I have a product that I thought market, you know, that recruiters would want. How do you package it? So you can package it as $99 a month, you can package it as $99 a year, or you can package it as $50,000 a year. What is the right packaging? So we started with, um, I said it should be $1,000 a month. And people said, why $1,000 a month? And I said, because it's a lot of money, so it's much easier to be profitable <laughs> with $1,000 a month. <laughs> And I hired a salesman, and he says, you're crazy. We will never be able to sell it for $1,000 a month. And that's an enter enterprise license? One seat. One seat. One seat. One person. One person. $1,000 a, $1, a month. He said, it's never going to fly. This is not going to work. I said, try it. So he tried it, and he failed miserably. So he come in and says, listen, if I can sell it for $99 a month, I can sell a shitload of it. I said, okay. Try. So he tried to sell it for $99 a month, and he sold nothing. So I said, the problem is not with the pricing and the packaging. The problem is with the salesman. So that was the end of that salesman. And then I brought the other guy that I told you, who is a real maverick. And I said to him, $1,000 a month. And he says, why only 1000 <laughs> I like this guy. <laughs> I said, I like you. <laughs> I said, you know what? Let's start with $1,000 a month. Go sell it. And he did a million dollar that year. Wow. By himself with no marketing. Okay. It's basically the, the Bloomberg model, which is you know, the Bloomberg terminals that right. every trader and every analyst uses is very expensive, but the perception when you spend money is that the quality is very, very high. Right. $99, the perception is one thing. $1,000, the perception is this is a really high quality product that people mm -hmm. need to have. And it goes way beyond what you just said. If you go to Google, and you have to wait 10 seconds for the answer. You say, that was a piece of crap, you know? You paid zero, right? But you have the expectation that it's perfect. When you buy an SAP product, 
you spend $5 million and you build into your budget another $20 million for implementation. Why doesn't it work? Why do you have to spend $20 million on implementation? So the higher the price, the higher your willingness to live with it not working. As funny as it sounds. If you buy a high, you know, a car that you spend a quarter of a million dollars, there's a good chance you would be much more tolerant for it spending, you know, a day, a month in the garage. Because it's complicated, it's sophisticated, you know, obviously. If you buy a cheap Toyota, you want it to work for five years without ever seeing even a gas station. The lower the price, the higher the expectation, not the other way around. It's counterintuitive. Really is, yeah. It's counterintuitive. But that's the way we are now trained. That when it comes to high tech, the lower the price, the higher the expectation. I want to take a minute and just to, to ask you about the internet. You know, we, we've seen this explosion of social media um, and, and very big, very, very fast growing companies like Facebook and, and Amazon, and obviously Google and uh, and others, uh, Twitter. Uh, where do you think the internet is going? Well, as I told you many times, I think that prediction into the future is yeah, very difficult. But I can tell you certain things that are obvious to everybody if you think about them. Fundamentally, the internet connects every to people in the world and actually are a very convenient way of communicating. So that has tremendous impact on the workforce. Without talking about artificial intelligence, everybody is now, oh, artificial intelligence is going to replace everybody. What I'm saying is you don't need artificial intelligence to replace everybody. Let me give you an example. When was the last time you went to your bank branch? Do you even know where it is? I think I went there once when I opened the account. Okay. Which, by the way, <clears throat> you can do online these days, so I don't even have to go there to do that anymore. Now, what happens to all the people who mend all of these branches? They're out of a job. They're out of a job. When was the last time you went to a government agency? A long time ago. Why? Because it's easier and faster for both sides for you to log in, get the answer, fill out the form, make it all happen. What happens to all of these people? They're gone. So what you see today is a tectonic change in employment about what people are going to do or not do. And the artificial intelligence hype is just the tip of, you know, it's not very important because we are in the middle of this tectonic change. We don't need to wait. At the same time, what you see are platforms that allow individuals to become businesses at very low cost. And we don't even think about it as that. But Uber employs, I don't know, 40,000 people, 50,000 people who are not really employees. You have a car, you know how to drive, you can make money, right? So Airbnb, you have a house, you're willing to tolerate some strangers, fine, you can make money. Oh, you like schmattes? Fine, you can sell them on eBay around the world. So what you see is suddenly platforms 
that allow individuals to start a business for very little cost worldwide. eBay, you know, Uber, no, but eBay and Amazon and Airbnb and all of that stuff, you can do business around the world from your armchair. So what you see is people are displaced by big companies because the big companies can afford to develop alternative solutions that make these people redundant. But these people can, if they have even the slightest of entrepreneurial skills, build their own business with relatively little investment, virtually no investment. And I see that trend actually accelerating. And data, and having the right data, is, is what accelerates. right in the middle. Is what accelerates all of that stuff. Hence the, uh, the success of, of Zoom Info. That's right. So now you've retired from ZoomInfo, at least as a CEO. You're back in Israel. What's the next step in your career? As I have a hunch you're not retiring anytime soon. <laughs> um, several things. First of all, I would like to do something that will make a difference to humanity, the world, whatever you want to call it, right? Without being too bombastic. Um, so when I looked in the mirror and I says, what, do you, what are your skill set that you can bring to bear? And the skill set that I think I can bring to bear is figure out different ways of looking at very simple problems that people are struggling with. So one area that of great interest to me is healthcare. I think there is a, a lot of opportunities in healthcare to build systems that work better. I'll give you an example. You go to a doctor and you, you know, have a urinary infection. The doctor says, oh, okay, so here's an antibiotics and go and give an, you know, a, a sample. The results from the sample come back three days later. And the results might actually change the medication the doctor wrote to you. Did you ever get a phone call from the doctor telling you, no, 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 you need another medication? The answer is no. Your face tells me no. I did a survey. Nobody ever remembers the doctor calling them. Nobody. Why? And why do you even need the doctor to call you? Because the computer can know that this medication is not the right medication for these test results. They can send you an email with the recipe for the, the, for the new medication. They can track whether you took it from the pharmacy, yes or no. All of this is the simplest thing on earth that every other industry is doing. Why is it not happening? I don't know. But I'm just talking about putting some very basic things that everybody else is doing today, as I said before, about forms and banks and all of that stuff, and applying them to the way that we provide healthcare. If you ask yourself, do I really need a doctor to do the diagnosis? And if you scratch your head, you realize that the doctors are the worst people to do it because the amount of information required is just too big. And that's not what doctors want to do. They don't want to sit there and sift through tons of articles every day to learn the newest thing. Computers are very good at it. What doctors should be doing is pay attention to patients and talk to them and work with them. So I think that the healthcare industry, and I have other ideas there, so I'm talking to a lot of people seeing what can we done in the healthcare industry 
in a way that I like, which is to make money along the way. So it has and as quickly as possible. So it has endless, you know, one rate in order to one way in order to grow. That's number one. Number two is what I said before. I think that there's a fundamental change in employment that big companies will reduce the number of employees and people can have the opportunity to build small businesses. And I'm thinking to myself, what are the small businesses that we would like to foster that will take what I call the proletariat? So the people who are not you know, software engineers. Software engineers will often have a job or you know, people with high education will always find a job. I'm talking about the people that used to be working in factories. Their education was basic. Then to be a bank clerk, yeah, your education was pretty basic. So these are the kind of people I'm talking about. If you ask yourself, who are these people today? I will shock you. Teachers. Teachers. Wow. Why? Think about it. What do they get paid? Very little. Their education? Not great. We complain about it, but we're not willing to pay the bill. Right? And the only reason you have so many teachers is because that's only one of the last professions where you need face-to-face -face interaction. Every experiment to make education online failed. You need a person there to teach. But it's a low-paying low, low pay, low job. That's the reality of it. So if you look at what are the jobs of the future, in my mind, these will be the jobs that either allow you to work remotely or allow you to interact with people because your interaction is what's important. Why does Israel create so many great entrepreneurs? What is it about the ecosystem here that churns out entrepreneurs who in many cases have been wildly su successful in, in, in changing the world? I think it's a combination of several things. I was fortunate enough to see what happened in that industry for long periods of time. First of all is the army and the military. So there we needed to do a lot of things ourselves because nobody wanted to sell us stuff. So we had to become just out of necessity, pretty entrepreneurial. But that's not enough. I think that at least in 8200 unit, they were smart enough to allow people to take the technology out. So Really? Yes. Think about the company that sits right around the corner from here. Nice. I know the founders. What did they do in the army? I can tell you a secret. When I was in the army and we listened to the enemy, we taped the conversation that we over, you know, that we eavesdrop on, on HP tapes, tape machine. And when you wanted to listen to it, you have to rewind it and move it, and you had to figure out there was a counter, and it tells you, oh, this, the, the interesting thing is on notch 392. Well, they came up with this wonderful idea that you can digitize the conversation, put it on a disk of a computer, build a nice UI to allow you to do that, and then you can transcript the conversation right on the screen as you listen to it on the screen. Today it looks obvious. It wasn't obvious at the time. When they left the army, they requested permission to use the technology for you know, civilian um, purposes. 
Now it looks for you obvious, you know, that everybody is uh, recording your conversation. So they started by selling actually to police and, um, you know, first responders and what have you. And then it spread into that every bank and every call center has it. But originally, it was a military application, an obvious military application. And that's just one example. There are many, many examples because the difference between what you do in the army and what you do in civilian life is very little. It's very little. Okay? To protect your computers against uh, hackers. Obviously, the army is very worried about it. And obviously, the army is developing technologies to protect and defend their systems. What's unique about it? Nothing. And then they allowed the people to take these technologies and made it very simple for them. So that's one area. The other area is a smoke. Do, do they demand any royalties? No. Or? no. Which is very smart. Yeah. Which is very smart. I think that it contributed to the success of Israel a lot more than if they got some stupid royalties, which universities require and make, put a huge barrier to why people don't work with universities. It's just too complicated. Life is too short. So I think that that was very, very smart on behalf of the army and, and so forth. Second, and you can see that the intelligence units spawned many more startups than the Air Force. My interpretation, and again, I have no reason to, you know, I have no proof, but my interpretation is that the Air Force, because they operate, you know, highly um, expensive pieces of equipment, they follow rigor, they follow the rules to the IOTA. The intelligence corps have, you know, everybody is a wild chaser. They do whatever they want especially in the technical units. I'm not talking about, you know, the Sayeret Matkal or whatever. So there was a spirit of the Wild West in terms of, I can do whatever I want, I can invent whatever I want, as long as it works, everybody is happy. And that fostered a lot of entrepreneurship. People were given some major, major tasks or challenges and were given the ability to do them. Because if they failed, nothing happened. So we didn't get the intelligence we needed, but anyway, we didn't have it before anyway, so who cares? No harm. No harm. <laughs> Third reason, it's a small country. So you can get things done by personal relationship. So if I needed to go and talk to somebody in the healthcare industry, I just picked up the phone and called somebody, and she called her uncle. That's real story. She called her uncle, and uncle is uh, the head of a department. And I had a meeting within like two hours. Because everybody knows everybody in here. So if you don't know them, your sister-in-law knows them. And if your sister-in-law doesn't know them, then somebody that sits two you know, chairs from you know them. Which, by the way, when you look at something like LinkedIn or Zoom Info, when you, you don't know who the other person knows. But now suddenly you do know who that person knows. And the path to that person just became that much shorter as a result of the data that you could gather. That is true in America. Okay. In Israel, you don't need LinkedIn. <laughs> you just ask. <laughs> Everybody is LinkedIn in Israel. Yeah, By definition, go. they LinkedIn. But it's beyond that. It's not just that you know them. There is an openness for people to talk to you. There is an openness to work with you and try things. It's kind of a lot more entrepreneurial in the entire fabric of the country 
So when you go to a company and you say, I want to try something, they will be much more open to talk to you. Or if you go to an establishment, you know, whether it is uh, the army or Kupat Cholim or whatever, they're more open to talk to you. Just, I don't know why, but they are. So that's, I think, why you have here the, the fabric to do things faster. Jonathan Stern, thank you very, very much for your time. This was great, and I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. I'm the host, Yigal Marcus. The associate producers are Moshe Raps and Avi Maklis, and the senior research analyst is Lior Levin. If you have a startup story that you want to share with us, feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is yigal.marcus at bernstein.com. Or you can also reach us at startupstoriesisrael at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.